All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Cybercast. Super excited today to have my guests, Mike Smola and Curtis Gartman, both from our esteemed partner, Flashpoint. How's it going, guys? Good. Going well, Tom. Thank you. So happy to have you guys here today. I am, this are, you guys are, let's see, our, we are on episode five. So we're, uh, we're tracking pretty well on, on the Cybercast, gaining subscribers and, you know, all that good stuff. But, you know, this is the fun part of my job. And I'm just really happy that you guys could spend a little bit of time with me today um, just to talk shop, talk a little bit about your experience in cyber, and then talk about some other good stuff that might come up in the conversation. So let me, for the audience, let me first just make a couple of quick introductions for you guys, if that's all right, just so people have an idea of uh, your background and where you come from. So I'll start with Mike Smola, Director of Risk Intelligence Strategy, Flashpoint. Mike, you've spent the last 25 years in retail prior to coming to Flashpoint. You've worked with a bunch of different retailers like Foot Locker, Starbucks, Walmart, in your time, you've worked in different areas within the retail industry, which is also pretty cool in terms of ops, compliance, cyber, compli uh, corporate compliance. Um, you have been at Flashpoint for how long now? Uh, just over a year and a half. Okay, so a year and a half at Flashpoint. Um, you've got also experience with, with data assurance and cyber intelligence prior to coming to to flashpoint also so you've got some really cool experience particularly within compliance and, and cyber and retail it's pretty awesome um let me also introduce the audience to curtis gartenman also director of risk intelligence strategy at flashpoint um curtis you've got a little bit of a different background from mike which is why i thought this would be such a great conversation because your background goes back to um let's see your background goes back to the CIA. Uh, you've done some inter really interesting stuff in terms of risk intelligence for the CIA. Also, just um, working with clients along the way, too. Um, you've got experience at Citibank, so you probably know my boss, Anuj Goal. Anuj <laughs> is, a, is, a, is a wonderful man, and uh, we work very closely together at Citi. So, uh, so, yes, I do. He's wonderful. Great. He's a, he's a great guy to work with. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that he, that he's my boss and he likes the cybercast too. So, you know, that's, that's always good, but um, what, so, all right, see, so while you were at the CIA, you've had, you've had multi-year assignments overseas. Um, you've done, you've done ops, you've done. Yeah. This is way cooler than, than anything I've ever done. And apparently I guess you also speak some Korean as well too. Very, very rusty Korean. Yes, Tom. But uh, I mean, it's all it looks good on paper. I'll tell you that the background. But uh, Mike Smola actually worked for a living. I was at uh, <laughs> I was at diplomatic cocktail uh, parties and receptions most of my career. So it's not quite as sexy as it, as it looks on paper. But you were a very good one, Curtis. Very good. I was very good at at, uh, at cocktail parties. Yes, that's right. Ah, uh, cocktail parties. Hopefully they're coming back. You know, it, se it seems like they it seems like they sort of are. This is uh, this is definitely a good thing for us. Well, um, very happy to have you guys. Let's dig right into it. You both have just like super impressive backgrounds in terms of what you're bring what you're bringing to the table for Flashpoint, um, who, again, is a, a partner of, uh, of Cyware. Give me, you know, Mike, let's start. Let's start with you. Give me a broad brushed, I guess, summary of what you feel maybe has changed in the past, maybe let's say five years in terms of intent, how attackers are starting to target organizations. What are the things that you're hearing about at Flashpoint that you're, uh, you know, that you're concerned with? Yeah, thanks, Tom. So, you know, that's kind of a cool question. And, and to be honest with you, I kind of go back and forth, right? I mean, as I take a look at the maybe the last five years, I think, man, so much has changed. But then when you start to dig in, you say very little has changed in terms of, you know, attack service and, and cyber criminals and things like that. I think what I find most interesting as it relates to the cyber criminal industry, and I like to call it an industry because I think in many ways they operate very similar to what typical industry operates like. Uh, they're very well organized. They're very well funded. They have 
you know, a, a plethora of different, what I would consider business units that support different activities um, in their organization. And I think one of the things that I find most interesting is, you know, years ago, you always felt as though that, hey, we're not a target, or why would they want to target us? And I, I believe in many ways, it's become a commodity type environment when you're talking about commercial industry, right? It's the path of least resistance. It's how they can monetize quickly. And I think every organization out there is a potential target. Um, I think technology is changing so fast. And I think the cyber criminals have the ability to adapt much quicker than industry. Right. So some of the internal red tapes from cyber criminal organizations just don't exist like they do in whether it be the retail industry or manufacturing industry, uh, the regulations that go along with trying to make decisions. I don't think that they have those. And I think they have the ability to embrace technology much quicker um, than industry. And therefore, in many ways, they find themselves at, at what I would call the tip of the spear in terms of really targeting and exploiting what's going on out there. Uh, if you think about from an industry perspective, they have to deal with things like legacy technology debt. Um, and in many cases, the cyber criminals don't even have to worry about that, but they have the opportunity to exploit it. So I think the, the speed in which technology is embraced on both sides is really what has changed over the last five years and has really required industry to, um, you know, earmark money and resources and infrastructure and organizational talent to, to better support that. And I think if you're behind the curve on that, you should consider yourself lucky that something hasn't happened. Uh, and even if you're out front from an industry perspective, there's still that opportunity um, for something to happen. Super interesting perspective. And tell me a little bit, um, Curtis, also, um, when you think about how, or how, I guess, how attackers are starting to organize themselves. I mean, it's all about, like Mike said, it's the quick monetization of their efforts. And when they're starting to target organizations, they just don't really have the red tape that a legitimate certified registered enterprise would have. Give me a little bit of an idea of um, what you've seen also over the past, let's just say, five years and how that kind of relates to, uh, to Mike's perspective. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, I think some really good points made by Mike, and I agree with the premise of your question, Tom. I think, it's a, I think it is a good question. And I don't know if my answer exactly aligns with sort of the, the last five years. I think it's probably been a little bit longer. But some, one of the trends that jumps out to me is increasingly the, the blending um, uh, and, and the blurring of lines between sort of what we might have considered to be more run-of-the-mill cyber criminals and cyber criminality, and then and then really really sophisticated nation-state uh, and, and and APT groups, um, uh, particularly from Russia and China, um, but from other places, from Iran and North Korea, all, all the usual suspects. Um, uh, the, the, the blurring of those lines to me has been one of the one of the really the worrying trends um, and and something that I think we are still trying to get our, our hands and, and heads around and and to devise sort of a, an appropriate response appropriate cyber policy whether it be as as a nation uh, as a global community um, or whether it be sort of private enterprises who get caught in the crosshairs at, at times, um, whether there's sort of a, a cold war, a new cold war, um, a war by other means, oftentimes it seems now to be expressed uh, in, in, in the sort of in, in the cyber realm. Um, and I think it's, it's new territory in a lot of ways. And that, 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 that blending, that blurring is really problematic in a lot of ways in terms of in terms of attribution, which is which is always difficult in the best of times, but obviously in terms of deterrence as well, um, and and in terms of 
taking uh, sort of uh, punitive measures, um, uh, how do you how do you distinguish um, if someone is a cyber criminal by uh, by night, a patriotic hacker by day, perhaps? How can you how wh where do those lines where where, where does where, where does that individual sort of take off one hat and put on another? It's that that's one of the most troubling trends for me, and one that I've seen, and one that's really captured. I think perhaps not surprisingly captured my interest given my background. Um, and, and again, where I do see a lot of the usual suspects, or as, at least as we used to define them, um, but something really troubling and really something that I think we, whether it be, again, um, sort of as, as governments around the world or as private enterprises, we haven't really gotten our, our heads around as of yet and come up with any kind of a, a coherent response. Really interesting. Well, and you think about you think about things like the election, right? Um, that capture national headlines, international headlines. And you think about, you know, you mentioned one thing about like how how do you enact or how how do you punitively, you know, how do you punitively actually go and charge a group, right? Like we have, I've seen the federal government charge groups in China. They've done the same in in Russia, but you know, there's a denial that comes from from the nation state. There's a denial that comes from foreign governments, right? And it just becomes, kind of, I, I agree with you that the, the blurring of the lines is, is crazy because you're, you're obviously, they're obviously going to shadow themselves. They're going to make sure that they cover their tracks. Like, so there's no trace um, until there is a trace, but then at the end of the day, what do you, what do you do about it when you find out who's done it? And I think my, my perspective might be that, and maybe you guys could kind of kind of jump into this as well too, which is you're usually really concerned if you're under attack or if you're if if you're seeing indicators that are suggesting that there's some staging happening, your concern your concern is the business, your concern is the data and the integrity of that data and being able to make sure that you can protect the business, you know you're gonna be hit, or if you know you've already been hit, rather than you really don't care. It's it's kind of weird. It's like what captures headlines is who it was, but when you're actually operationally involved in it, you don't really care who it is. Like you just want it, you want to be able to make sure that you're protecting the business, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right, Tom. And it, it it's it is interesting. The question of attribution. I've heard sort of uh, opinions on both sides about how how important is it really? Certainly in the moment, but. It is also interesting too, with some of the nation state actors and the blurring of lines, how brazen um, they have become so that, you know, attribution is almost passe as, as a notion in the sense that there, there are no repercussions for them in many cases. The, uh, sanctions have been put um, on everything that, it, that can possibly be sanctioned. Or if you're, if you're, if you're a North Korean um, government official um, in the inner circle, and you're and you're trying to decide whether to go after a certain target. What what is the deterrence? What do you fear if you're not a part of the international trading system, the international financial system? Like what what would deter you? What 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 more could possibly be sanctioned in North Korea um, if you're sort of a kleptocracy or a, a criminal state as they are? What could possibly deter you at this point? Um, probably only something kinetic, um, and and so it it becomes it, it's it's quite frightening at times. But it's an interesting question around attribution. I'd be interested to to hear what what Mike thinks, especially with his background. Well, first of all, Curtis, you use such big words. I don't know that I even understand what you just said. Hey, so, Mike, uh, you, I appreciate you, you, you for early. I had to <laughs> Google that. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I appreciate you for confusing me. But, you know, the, it is interesting talking about attribution, right? Because in many times or many ways, I believe that the, the question about attribution really depends on uh, not the actual attribution, but who's asking. Um, and, you know, if you think about it from a boardroom standpoint, if your board of directors wants to know whether or not North Korea has attacked our organization or that we're a target for, for North Korea, then attribution matters. But I think when you talk about infrastructure and vulnerabilities and exploits and the ability to continue to serve your customers 
um, or from a brand perspective, whether or not your customers want to continue to, to, to utilize your products and services, attribution doesn't really matter. It's about whether or not you have put the security controls in place and whether or not you've organized your, um, your business pillars to support the protection of, of data, to support the protection of uh, employees, assets, and whether or not you can keep the lights on so consumers can, um, you know, purchase your products or, or, or choose to purchase your products. And so from my standpoint, sure, it's really cool to, uh, you know, talk about attribution and what sort of groups or countries um, may be uh, most active or what they're doing. But I think when you're in the heat of the moment and you're working in an organization, um, it depends on who's asking whether or not attribution continues to, to, to be the priority. Right. I, and, and I think that the, the attribution could actually, in some cases, if you're being asked, to your point, Mike, I think if you're being asked who's attacking you, there typically would be a number of potential techniques or at least some, some level of a familiarity with how specific a group, specific attack, yeah. uh, attackers could potentially launch a full-scale campaign against your organization, right? Like that also, attribution could also lead to, okay, like, well, we know they're going to launch ransomware at this point in the threat life cycle, and we know that they're going to sort of, you know, they're, they're going to, you know, decrypt, they're going to decrypt here and, and that sort of thing. That could also be something that actually is helpful um, at least if you know that from a threat intelligence standpoint, you're looking at a specific group or, or attackers, right? Yeah, I mean, I think technology, vulnerabilities within your environment, um, all those sort of things uh, <clears throat> allows you to at least assess risk and the likelihood of some, that a group, whether it be nation state or whether it be a group of people sitting in their basement, um, you know, in, in somewhere domestically, uh, have the ability to to leverage your infrastructure against you, right? Or your um, the decisions that you've made or chose not to make, whether or not that could be leveraged against you for monetary or reputational um, benefit. Yeah, super interesting. I, I think maybe well, that kind of it kind of leads us into one of the one of the other topics that we had started to talk about, which was threat intelligence. Obviously, Flashpoint's a threat intelligence company, right? There's so many different flavors of threat intelligence. There's so many different areas that we could start to unpack around threat intelligence. Give me an idea, maybe Curtis. Like, what's what does threat intelligence mean to you? And I guess maybe the 1A question on this would be, what defines good threat intelligence today? Yeah, it's a good question, uh, Tom. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not gonna do this in a very elegant definition, but good, good threat intelligence to me helps the right people make better decisions within any organization. Um, and and they, they can be working level folks who are trying to institute additional controls or refine uh, sort of controls or, or efforts to mitigate. Um, or they can be senior decision makers on a, on a policy level, whether it's governmental or in, in private enterprise. So I think good, good threat intelligence is, is, is getting the right information to the right people at the right time. Um, so that's like a really broad uh, definition. Um, we hear a lot, I think probably Mike and I both do, um, working with organizations uh, in our roles at Flashpoint, we hear a lot about, I mean, there are a lot of buzzwords out now uh, around um, actionability and being intelligence-led and, uh, you know, attempting to move from reactive to proactive. These are all, these are all, these are all good things, right? These are all very important things. It's very difficult, however, um, it, it's very difficult, particularly with folks who, who might not have an appreciation for threat intelligence um, coming in um, because of background or experience. Um, it's, it's sometimes very difficult 
to show those to show those business wins right. or the actionability? How do you measure um, the the impact of the intelligence that you're ingesting and that, and that you're receiving? Um, it's very it's very difficult. It, it's very hard to to quantify. Um, and I, I know in previous roles, and I'm sure Mike uh, did as well, we, we try to work up the proper metrics and the measuring sticks, whether they be on monthly or quarterly or annual basis, to try to determine the impact of all the, the, the intelligence, all the information, all the data that was coming in. Um, it's very hard to measure. I think it's good to strive for actionability and for being proactive as much as possible. I think the reality is that most of us are reactive. We, we at Flashpoint, because of what we're able to do and the way we're able to monitor threat actors and, and, their, and their chatter, we, we are able to achieve that sort of proactive state or even predictive um, uh, uh, quite often. But, it's, but it's, yeah, it still feels to me a little bit like the Holy Grail. It's, 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 it's something we're always striving for. And then I think really importantly, you know, the business wins, the actionability, whenever it occurs within an organization, it has to be documented, you know, and that, that speaks to the need for, for relationships, trusted relationships internally between the intelligence organization in, uh, within that enterprise and, and its internal consumers, the consumers of the intelligence. You have those relationships, you have those those uh, those uh, closed loop feedback processes, and then you can document those business wins. You can document the actionability, and then it demonstrates the value. I think of good intelligence. Super cool, yeah. I, and I think the I think that people typically like to associate actionability with threat intelligence. What can you action? Is it a threat response or what? What does that actioning, quote unquote, look like coming out of leveraging IOCs, malware alerts, vulnerability alerts, what, like whatever it is. And I think that there is, there definitely are some interesting, how should I say it? There are some, some interesting dynamics at play when it comes to threat intelligence, because I think practitioners like the like the two of you understand what it takes to kind of operationalize threat intelligence, but I think it's it's different for every organization. It's different for every cyber team, and oftentimes I think that threat intelligence is somewhat separate from I don't know maybe separate from from other security practitioners as well too. So I'm wondering where like where it becomes something that you are looking at relative to threat intelligence that like why doesn't it all tie together in in security operations like yeah you know i i think it does all tie together that's the interesting thing is i i think the 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 loop and the uh, the life cycle all tie together. And, and you know, I'm going to, I'll talk a little bit about this and I'll kind of be all over the place here, Tom. So bear with me. But I, I, I think, first of all, when I, when I think about threat intelligence uh, and I think about usable threat intelligence, it's in some ways, it's kind of a misnomer. I think really what we're looking for is to that point, do we have the ability to action certain intelligence? And I think we all want to get to that, right? But I also think that we find ourselves in situations to where even though we can't action it, there's some really cool stuff out there and, and we, we want to know about it. And so the idea of then going down the rabbit hole, and I think it goes back to this idea of proactive versus reactive. And, and the idea of proactive is that you're taking information and you are potentially willing to make a decision organizationally on something that hasn't happened yet inside your organization. And I think that is really tough, right? I mean, it's really tough to say, hey, we need to spend this kind of money or we need to um, purchase this product or we need to change this policy. And they, they ask you why, and you say, well, because I have some intelligence that leads me to believe. And they're like, okay, so you're right. telling me nothing has happened yet. Well, no, but it may. And, and so 
the idea of quantifying prevention is extremely tough. So we, we have a tendency to fall back into that idea of actionable intelligence or usable or what's in it for me intelligence. And, and I think we need to think more broadly about that. Of course, limiting the noise is important. And I think that's where a lot of organizations struggle is the ability to limit noise. But I don't think we should limit noise just to the point of whether or not I can action it, because what's important today may not be important tomorrow. And what's not important today may be extremely important in 24 hours. So we have to allow our intelligence teams and our, our analysts and our security operations people, you know, in some kind of way, uh, operate with the idea of yes, we have to action things. We have to we 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 have to find things that that we can apply to our environment right away to protect it. But we also have to create an environment in which our teams have the ability to to go beyond that and not close them into uh, a specific rail. And I and I kind of boil it down to when as a practitioner, when you walk in each day, there are these things that you have to do. Right from an intelligence standpoint, there, there, there are certain things that are a requirement of the job that every single day you have to do. And then there are those things within that day that you want to do. And that's kind of the somewhat rabbit hole stuff, allowing your teams to operate in a flexible environment that allows them to do, uh, you know, use their intuition and use the intelligence to, to do those things that they want to work on that, that have the ability to impact down the road. And then there are those things that get thrown at you the minute you walk in and said, I have to respond to this because this leader or this group or this hit the news and you have to be able to, what I would consider, find intelligence related to that. Not necessarily to make a decision, it may be just to inform somebody, but you have to have an environment and you have to have technology and you have to have tools that allow those three things to occur concurrently uh, in my opinion, to create the, the best sort of environment to um, create the strategic decisions, to create uh, a reactive environment, and to create this proactive security atmosphere um, for, for the future. Very eloquently stated. I would say that you answered it better than I asked it for sure. <laughs> what one thing that kind of stands out to me also um, based on both of the responses there is how do you get, how do you get a CEO or how do you get someone who is not a security practitioner, does not have a cyber background, it does not, does not do what you do. How do you get someone to invest in being able to prevent and sort of look, look ahead in terms of okay, like intelligence and IOCs are telling us that, the, that this attack could potentially happen. Um, how do you get someone to invest in a proactive approach to their cybersecurity? Does, does it take them just being experiencing a massive scale breach in the past? What I, look, Tom, sorry to cut you off. Sure. I, I, don't, I don't think so because I get this question or I had this question quite a bit. And to be honest with you, I don't have a technology background. I don't have a cybersecurity background. I mean, my background from years in retail started operationally. So I think being able to translate the intelligence and translate the message based on the audience, because look, if, if you're going to provide a bunch of IOCs and a nation state APT report to, let's say, a, a market manager, or a district loss prevention manager, they're gonna look at that and say, I, I, don't, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. I mean, how does this impact me? So I think the ideas of, uh, of, of being, able to trans, um, being able to transfer the message to the audience is extremely important. And if you think back 10 or 15 years ago, whether this is a popular or unpopular, you know, from a technology standpoint or, or from uh, a technical component, there were handlers, right? I mean, you had super smart system administrator, you had super smart technical guy um, 
that that knew the information extremely well, but you had to have somebody additionally translate that message to um, a particular leader uh, in the organization. And I think those days are over. So I think it has a lot to do with who, how you hire and whether or not the, that message can be translated from um, both verbally and both report-wise so that you can get exposure to other areas of the business that have the ability to help support the mission of protecting the environment. So regardless of the background of your CISO or CEO or CFO or whoever you're reporting up through, it is important to be able to translate that message in a way in which they can utilize it to better protect the environment. Interesting, interesting. I, well, because you're, you guys are a threat intelligence company, so I'm sure that you, I'm sure that you do come across that question on a regular basis, and it's, you know, yep. you're help, you're helping, you're helping clients kind of figure out their path, right? Yeah, and, Most and definitely. Tom, I, 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 yeah, I'll echo. Every, I, I totally agree with Mike. With the sentiment of what Mike said, I think uh, I think it's incredibly important. I think there is almost no greater skill that I've seen, and I think it's in pretty short supply. Um, generally, at most organizations I've been a part of, uh, uh, to have somebody who can act as that liaison, who can who can brief technical to a non-technical audience in a way that they can digest and understand and appreciate. Um, and so I, I think that's, I, I, I disagree only slightly with Mike in that I think that role is, uh, is, is still in fairly short supply um, and at, at that, that, that capability. Um, but the importance of what Mike is talking about, 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 about leading those decision makers to water so that they can drink, um, it's, it's an incredibly important role. Um, and I think to answer your original question, Tom, I'll disagree only slightly with Mike too. I think sometimes it does take either uh, a breach or or a, a, a breach of uh, another company in the same space or something that really captures the attention of those senior decision makers to, to say there, but for the grace of God, it, it could have been us. Um, so I think that... Uh, I think I think there I, I think there is still some of that. Although I think with and what we've talked about, what's been trending over the last five years, particularly perhaps ransomware, um, how seemingly indiscriminate um, it, it has been, and how many different industries and verticals it's affected. I think that has probably focused the minds of decision makers to a to a much higher degree than we've seen before. And I think folks are now appreciating um, that. That, that there's a level of investment that they need to make on the front end um, in advance uh, in anticipation of a particular of a potential uh, incident um, rather than sort of um, uh, banking on obscurity or or relative obscurity or sticking their heads in the sand if you will yeah that's that's a you bring up a good point there Curtis because I think that was going to be one of the next questions that we could run through which is, Interesting techniques, different types of attacks. What's inter what's interesting to to both of you today that that you've seen, and then perhaps maybe even some stuff that you haven't seen. And I know ransomware continues to be so problematic, not just for businesses but consumers too. I mean, it's just like yeah. And you mentioned the 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 indiscriminate nature of it, and it just becomes something that I mean, are we sort of like? are we ever going to see the end of ransomware and like, where is it, where is it going or how is it evolving rather so that it's going to be, it's going to continue to be this incredible moneymaker for, for attackers. There, there are a few things that jump out to me too. I'll go back uh, historically one that sort of focused my mind and, and sort of changed the way I viewed things was, was the North Korean, uh, uh, hack of uh, Sony Pictures Entertainment. That was something of a game changer. I think I talked before about sort of the blending, the blurring, and, and Tom, I think we talked about that, and Mike as well. Right. Um, but that was one that sort of was a little bit of a game changer, um, at, at least for me, and I think set um, set sort of, uh, you know, a trend in motion. I think, I think again, I, I have some 
bizarre fascination with with uh, with North Korea and uh, and the North Korean regime. So the the various swift heists, I think it started with the Bank of Bangladesh um, as well. Uh, essentially, a, a nation state robbing banks uh, digitally um, and then uh, laundering money through Filipino casinos and and other places. I mean, just brazen, uh, terrible, uh, fascinating uh, crimes um, from the minds of folks that that obviously see things very differently than the way most of us do. So those those were those were um, really uh, fascinating uh, uh, sort of attacks or incidents um, in in the past five years or so. Um, the ransomware one, I, I'm just interested to see as well. Um, you know, there was quite a bit of blowback from what was it, Dark Side uh, uh, Colonial Pipeline, um, yeah. and Mike, Mike mentioned the attack on the the sort of the meat supply chain uh, here. I don't remember the company. Uh, 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 name exactly, but um, ju just recently, um, and I wonder too. Like those, those did not occur in a vacuum. Like we, we, I talk about sort of the indiscriminate, seemingly indiscriminate nature of ransomware. But again, these are presumably Russian or Eastern European cyber criminal groups that are going after U.S. critical infrastructure. To which you know we we have we have gasoline panic uh, we have people panic buying gasoline and lines and the price of gas going up um, uh, you know this didn't occur under the previous president it occurs under this president three four five months into his term it's 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 potentially all related you know um, mm -hmm. attacks on cr critical infrastructure and the like. Um, I, perhaps these were cyber criminals uh, merely attempting to make money. Um, perhaps there are other motivations as well. Um, it's really, it's just fascinating to me how this, this space continues to evolve. And again, the blurring, the blurring of lines, how, how hard it is to, to discern, clearly discern for the purposes of attribution or for the purposes of sanity, how, how hard it is to figure out who is behind it and what their motivations are. So fascinating. And, and, you know, it kind of, it, it stands out to me, Mike, that based on, based on Curtis's sort of perspective on this, wow, did we ever really, like, we used to hear about the supply chain being attacked years ago. <laughs> and now it's a, it's a, it's a distinct reality. And it's, and it's legit, like the panic that it's causing the, like, you know, it's, it's making, it's making the price of gasoline or, and, and presumably probably the price of meat very shortly, extremely high, right? Like price, like prices are, are, are skyrocketing, but it just kind of seems like, all right, well, like all of a sudden these infrastructure and supply chain attacks are, are real. Like it's not just a pipe dream anymore. And it's not, you know, it's not just sort of the fear factor and fear mongering that used to happen 10 years ago. It's, it's real now and it's becoming like, it's becoming commonplace. Yeah, and you know, and I agree with Curtis. I, I think in many ways, when you talk about supply chain, you talk about certain verticals, it's, it's all interconnected uh, in my opinion as well. I mean, I, I, I do believe that, you know, supply chain generally has lagged behind other industries, right? That are non, uh, what I would consider financial compliance related. And I think that we find those uh, industry verticals somewhat of a target at times, and it captures great headlines. And I, I, I think every organization, if they are not today taking a look um, at their environment and saying, what do we have in place if something does happen? What are the decisions we've made in the last three to five years to, to help protect the environment. If they're not doing that, they should be doing that because I think in many ways, everybody is a potential target. And if you just pull up any news article or cyber blog or something like that, it's happening every day. I think the, the interesting thing though, is there are some things within the critical infrastructure of our environment, the ability to move goods and services whether it be Marisk or, or um, you know, the, the pipeline. But 
you know, our, our food chain, our water supplies, if you take a look at what's happened with utilities um, and, and a number of uh, ransomware events that both nation state related and domestically in which um, critical infrastructure has taken, um, you know, a hit based on decisions that have been made in those environments. And I find what's interesting about all of this is, you know, this, this honor among thieves, what's going on, this, this idea that people who perpetrate these do have, in my mind, some sort of standards in which they abide by. Uh, and the, the meeting of those standards is what allows them to monetize it over time, right? I mean, if, if, they, if they say, we'll give you the keys, we'll release this information if you pay us, and then if you pay them and they don't release the information, then what's the likelihood of other organizations continuing to pay? And I find that, I find that fascinating. Uh, and I find where organizations who didn't look at cyber insurance previously are now looking at cyber insurance and this idea of, oh, we would never pay to all of a sudden, well, we, we may pay based on the mathematical equation and, and whether or not the reputational risks are there. So I see this sort of thing evolving extremely quickly over the last 12 months, more so than it did years ago. And, and the idea of never miss an opportunity to capitalize on a crisis, right? And I, and I don't mean that flippantly. I just mean that if somebody from an industry standpoint is experiencing some sort of crisis, it allows you an opportunity to um, intrinsically look at your environment and look at your uh, contingency plans and, and say, you know, are we prepared? Could it happen to us? Of course it can happen to us. Um, and, and whether or not we're prepared for something like that. It's so interesting too, when you see all the ransomware attack news that hits the national headlines and CNN and everything else, it's like, what, I, and actually my daughter asked me the question, she said, why would they, why would they pay? We were talking about ransomware. She said, well, why would they pay it? And what I said was, you know, I think that there's organizations who don't, who kind of just have to pay it right? Like they feel, they feel obligated to pay it because it's so disruptive to their business that they don't really have much of a choice and, or they, they perhaps missed some signals along the way, which is entirely likely, or it's, and, or it's, they just don't, they don't really have the, it's whatever, whatever, whatever encryption they've placed on freezing <laughs> the IT assets. It's like, they just they can't decrypt it, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't right. exist. It only exists with that attack with that attacking group, right? It's like it's real. It's really maniacal when you think about. I mean, they just have such a captive audience anywhere they want to turn. Yeah, and you know, a lot of times organizations may not be doing backups regularly. They don't have a good business continuity and disaster recovery plan. They don't have their infrastructure in in tiers. Um, they're they're just not prepared for that. I mean, it's, it's probably been a topic of boardrooms uh, of every single company, but just because it's a topic of discussion doesn't mean decisions have been made on it. And I think you're, you're seeing that play out in front of us every day in the news. And, um, uh, you know, of course, countries and certain groups are getting a lot of uh, air time, a lot of media time. But, but frankly, you know, the ability to leverage a vulnerability to exploit an environment for monetary gain or business disruption, if, if the vulnerability exists, then you, a, you are a target of whether it's a nation state right. or, you know, a group of people that are disgruntled sitting in a basement that have the means and the time to, to pull off one of these attacks. It's a crazy world we live in, and I think there, it certainly provides job security for all of us being in the cybersecurity world. One of the things that actually we haven't, we didn't really talk about this before the podcast recording, but, you know, it, where are we with, with the shortage of talent? This has been sort of a hot button, beaten to death kind of topic over the past five years in the, in the industry itself, and certainly has been something that 
that does come up at all the conferences that are now coming back like you know it, it, it's a part of a lot of the talk talk tracks and panels but where are we with this with with that shortage it, it seems to me that we should have more kids coming out of college who are who are up to speed on on techniques on you know on technology on coding secure coding like why are we in this spot as an industry where we can't find enough good people yeah tom maybe i'll jump in on that one too i i uh i i've heard a lot this same as you and i'm sure mike i've heard a lot of talk about the the skills gap i think it's real i think we're not doing a good job of sort of preparing our young people on any number of fronts right not just in terms of information security or or cybersecurity, but uh, you know whether it's financial literacy or uh, mm -hmm. or um, or how how to how to budget or or pay a credit card bill in time on time. There there are a lot of things I think we're not doing, not preparing um, uh, kids for very well. Um, but I think also perhaps casting a bit of a wider net. This isn't I don't think a, a novel thought on my part, but I, I I and I think you know hopefully you and Mike have seen this as well working with people who are really bright and energetic and forward-leaning and conscientious, I don't think they necessarily, some of the people that I brought in and who have turned out to be some of the highest performers did not have a technical background, did not have a cyber or an information security background per se. They came in with a certain inquisitiveness a certain curiosity generally about life, but about a, a zest for learning new things. And they came in with an energy and you can train these people, right? Uh, in, in a year or two, uh, a large financial institution, a large retailer, a government department or agency, you find people like this from whatever their background is, who are bright and energetic and curious. And I think you can train them fairly quickly so there's two sides to that. We can bemoan the fact that there's a skills gap and we're not training young people, enough young people in these skills uh, in, in, in uh, sort of post-secondary school, what have you. Um, but I think we can also do more by casting a wider net and just getting good people and training them up ourselves. Curtis, I would agree with you. I mean, <clears throat> I, I think, um, you know, I think this idea that we don't have enough talent out there is, is less about the talent that is out there and more about, frankly, the, the hiring management. I, I mean, I'll, I'll use my experience. The, the idea that there was or was not enough talent out there never played into my decision making, which therefore I never felt as though that I was held high hostage that I had to hire somebody based on a certain background. The idea was, is that could I find somebody that one, met certain technical capabilities, had a desire and aptitude to continue to grow and, and whether or not uh, they were willing to work within the industry environment in which I was supporting. So, you know, oftentimes as I talk to a lot of people about this specific topic, right, there about the 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 gap of talented people and my question is is where are you looking um are you looking in non-traditional places for talent and the answer usually is no not really and 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 my challenge back to them is well why not right. if, if you're in the energy sector why would you not want to hire somebody that has good technical capabilities, but also understands the energy sector? You don't always have to pick somebody that has a previous experience in some sort of threat intelligence analyst role, um, regardless of, of where they did that. You have the ability to hire somebody that understands the industry that you're in, but also possesses a desire and aptitude to continue to grow those technical skills. And oftentimes, like you said, Curtis, if they meet a inquisitive and desire component, that it is amazing what a motivated individual can and is willing to do um, when they are inspired by the work and the leadership team that they're under. Fascinating discussion today, guys. This is this is pretty cool. We're obviously doing some work together as a as between Cyware and Flashpoint. 
where do you see, you know, where do you see the threat intelligence market going? And, you know, I guess the other question would be, what's, what's interesting, there's a million partnerships out there, what's interesting about the partnership with, with Cyware? Obviously, Flashpoint's been in the market for longer than Cyware has, we're a little more, we're a little more on the earlier stage side. Um, but, you know, where, what's interesting about what we're doing together with respect to threat intelligence? And, you know, what's, what what kind of what kind of gets you going like if you had to strive for something within the threat intelligence market and you know maybe this has something to do with our partnership where where do you see it going and kind of what gets what gets you going in terms of what gets you excited relative to what we could potentially do together that like is just different in the market yeah so i i will say from a cyware standpoint and a flashpoint standpoint Really, I think the most exciting thing for me is the the ability to leverage both organizations for, you know, like to, to create this automation and enrich the intelligence cycle. And I think, as I mentioned earlier about noise, right, and, and not all noise is good, but not all noise is bad. And the ability to to take that information, enrich it into things that you would find within your organization that are compelling and I think the other thing that I think is really cool about the relationship is the ability to support organizations of variety of sizes, right? And so, so the idea that that what what works for a two-person shop can't work for a six or ten-person shop, or you know what works for a large organization can't work for a small organization. And I think that's where Cyware and Flashpoint have kind of teamed up to be able to say, yes, it can. Uh, and, and this is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to help the industry. And I think in many ways, this enrichment piece is, is really where uh, a lot of threat intelligence shops should and will be going in the future because the audience isn't always just incident response and security operations centers. It's vulnerability management. It's the patching team. It's uh, infrastructure. It's network. It's e-commerce. It's, it's the development team. It's all these different components that have the ability to leverage intelligence. But what's the best way to kind of enrich it so you can go back to what I mentioned before, translate that message into something usable for the audience. And I think that's what's really cool about the partnership, in my opinion. Really cool. Definitely, we get a lot of good, um, when we talk about some of the work that we're doing together, I th and, it, and we're still kind of at the, we're still sort of at the tipping point, I think, in terms of what we can do together as, you know, in terms of our companies, but we get good marks from the analysts and, you know, they kind of, they're looking at it and it seems like uh, looking at it from a holistic view is kind of interesting. Like this yeah. should be something like ed, any company should want to put themselves in a, in a more proactive stance to prevent things from happening. Right. And how can you do that through intelligence and the operationalization of threat Intel into, into that organization. And I love the way you just characterize that Mike with it kind of like splinters into all of the, sometimes fragmented parts of the cyber team overall um yeah so totally interesting um curtis what's yeah. your what's your take on that yeah I, I i think mike gave a great answer and i think I, i've seen it in action too i'm such a from sort of previous life and previous experience uh, I'm, I'm such a big fan of and such a big proponent of sort of the fusion center model um, uh, you know, warts and all, uh, it, there, there are growing pains associated with sort of knocking down walls and, and breaking down silos um, and, and establishing something, either, either an actual sort of fusion center uh, concept or model in an organization or something approximating that. It's not, it's not easy work, but I think it's really, it's really important work and I think it's very much worthwhile. So, so I think the combination of Flashpoint um, sort of, I, I think, you know, acknowledged industry leader and with such uh, expertise and with such muscle memory in terms of what we do and, and, and our collection methodologies, uh, how we collect and where we're able to collect from. That combined with sort of Cyware's focus on 
whether it be sort of that that virtual cyber fusion sort of model uh, in terms of how how these these feeds and how feeds like like uh, flashpoint can be represented can be ingested can be shared and i think most importantly i think mike touched on it really well but and in my previous experience as well those those ever widening sort of concentric circles like building out not just the cti team not just the SOC team not just iocs but 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 across a wide variety of teams like on, on paper teams that might not have a tremendous amount in common but they're they're related they all fall under the sort of information security or even the physical security sort of um, sort of uh, uh, construct but they're all focused on security a company like cyware which uh, you know just anecdotally has been getting such fantastic buzz i think mike and i are both hearing it in our meetings with 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 existing and prospective clients and with a number of information sharing organizations that i work with as well but the ability of of cyware to sort of speed that process along uh sort of speed that integration and that and that the the implementation of that of that effort to break down those walls break down those silos i think it's incredibly timely and and relevant and obviously the combination again of good intelligence of good of good of good collections um with that ability to sort of set up a virtual cyber fusion center to to help to uh, uh foster that kind of intelligence information sharing and those exchanges and again establish those closed loop feedback processes across these different teams organizations i think it's a great combination i think it's a powerful partnership well i for, i for one um definitely appreciate the uh the the nod on on buzz just kind of you know owning the marketing function here helps me helps me sleep at night knowing that we're that I'm starting to do my job very well that my team is performing well so I appreciate that but I I can't wait to work more deeply and unpack some other avenues of go to market and research work that we can do together so I I mean I'm certainly very excited about it and this has been a incredibly we could go on all day like this is so this is so much fun uh, we could go on we literally could do 8 hours on this but for the sake of people and 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 the audience and their time why don't we, why don't we, <laughs> let's move on to our, our really fun segment, which is the rapid fire round, which is a bunch of random questions generated by, you know, sort of the convoluted, you know, my convoluted mind when I start thinking about music and pop culture. So um, this is sort of like the signature of the cybercast at the end as we wrap up our conversation. But so if you guys are ready, I'll start firing some questions and maybe we can go, we can go Mike first and Curtis second on your answers. And, you know, sometimes what I do is I'll, I'll kind of, I'll, I'll add in my answer too, but I'm more interested based on your backgrounds and your personalities, what you guys think of this. So you ready for 10 stupid questions? <laughs> bring it, bring it Tom. I'm ready. All right. Number one, NBA, who wins or who cares? <laughs> uh, who cares? But I hope the Nets win. Yeah, I stopped uh, in in large measure watching <laughs> the NBA when 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 uh, when Magic Johnson and Larry Bird retired, and when Jordan retired, I really gave it up for good. So who cares for me, though? I love it. I, I'm an NBA junkie, so I, I I continue to watch it. But I love hear I love hearing perspectives on it. All right, we're going old. We're going old school here. Okay, Sega or Nintendo. Curtis, uh, I, I think uh, I, if I've got between those two, I got to go with Sega, but I'll go with like Intellivision or ColecoVision because I'm going older school, Tom. I'm going older than that. Atari 2600, still have one. Sweet. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, like the, day, the days today of the, I think my kids have the Nintendo Switch, um, but they don't have, they don't have Xbox or anything like that. Yeah, I remember I had ColecoVision and they had the, the had that cool sort of like little knob on it. It was Amazing. the joystick, but it was a knob too. Amazing. Oh man, I miss, I miss it. I definitely miss it. All right. More annoying. TikTok or Instagram today? 
I, both are annoying. I, I can't keep up with all of them. Right. <clears throat> so whether, I, I mean, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or Reddit, I mean, I, I can't keep up with all of them. Um, but, uh, I don't know. Sometimes I like some of the videos on TikTok because they're short and, and um, I laugh, but uh, I don't know. I don't spend much time on either one. Yeah, I'm in I'm in a similar boat, uh, although, yeah, I do enjoy some of the some of the short TikTok videos I see as well. So I'll uh, I don't know what the question was, Tom. I think it was more noise. I'll say <laughs> yeah. <laughs> more, which one's more annoying? You know, the. Uh, TikTok for me is annoying because I mean, like the 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 fact that a the fact that a tech company is controlling the physical movements of one of my daughter's soccer teams when I go to pick yeah. them all up for soccer, it's like what, like what, I, where did it, where did it come from? I mean, you know, it's just to me, it's I, I do, I'm in the same boat. I find them both annoying. Tom, you're being tracked by everybody. Everybody exactly. is being tracked by everybody. <laughs> exactly exactly we, we we definitely are all right so this is one of my favorites because i very rarely pick this stuff up at the store but i love walking by the section and i have educated my children on on this on this topic specifically so i, I like once a year i'll stop and actually put one of these in the basket but better junk food drake's or hostess oh for me it's hostess white powder donuts and anybody that's listening that knows me knows that I'm kind of a donut guy. I love donuts. <laughs> so it's white powdered donuts. I don't even know what Drake's is, Tom. I hate to say that. So I'll go with Hostess as well. But for me, it would probably be like Twinkies or Ho-Hos. Okay. All right. So I think that I think that Hostess probably wins out. I mean, the Hostess cupcakes are phenomenal not only do you have a cream filling and chocolate cake, but you get the chocolate frosting on it too. That's just loaded with like chemicals and whatnot, but man, it tastes so, it tastes so good. Um, funny bones would be a, a close second. And I believe those are, I think those are a Drake's product. Funny bones are basically the same thing as a, as a ring ding, but in a sort of like log shaped format, chocolate frosting chocolate cake with fake peanut butter inside which are also delicious so those are those are my uh <laughs> those are my vices in in college all right moving on to a, a more attractive topic j-lo better with a-rod or better as ben low i'm a ben low i mean and somebody would ask me well why and i said because it's more of a train wreck I mean, you never, you, you never, you never know what's going to happen with Ben. So, uh, yep, let's 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 go Ben low for me. Uh, I enjoy keeping up with her. Uh, in, speaking of Instagram uh, photos, <laughs> um, I, but I would like to see uh, J Lo with Mike Smola. Uh, that's what I would like. To see. I'll, I'll hold out for that. Yeah, well, that won't go over well with the with my lovely wife. I'm not saying it wouldn't be awkward, Mike. I'm just saying we, this was rapid yeah. time, you know. Okay. Right. All right. right. We're, we're, this is the ideation process in, in real time. All right. Final season of the Kardashian show. Good or bad? I know where I stand with this, but Mike, what do you think? Who? <laughs> I've never heard of him. Tom, I'm happy to say I'm very proud to say I've never watched an episode. Of so, uh, so I, I feel that, 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 that is a badge of honor. Yeah, there's there's Bravo on in my household, and uh, I'm I'm ecstatic that it's ending. Let's just, we'll leave we'll leave that topic there. All right, for I I love this, and I'm very interested for uh, in terms of um, where you guys are on this first trip after COVID. Vacation or business? Uh, vacation for me. Yeah, I want it to be vacation, but I'm thinking it might be business. Because all the places where I would like to take a vacation are still struggling a little bit with COVID. Not right. me. Put, put me in a bass boat on a lake somewhere in the southeast and I'm good. There you go. All right. All right. Uh, let's see. Got a couple left. Virtual meetings. Are you over it at this point, or are you still kind of digging them from a convenience standpoint? 
if the alternative is in-person meetings uh, with having to shower and shave and commute uh, and get dressed uh, and all that, I will stick with virtual. Although, uh, yeah, th there is a Zoom fatigue. I think you're, you're on to something there, Tom. <laughs> if, if, if staying home or spending time with Curtis is my option, that's a tough one, man. And I go back and forth based on my calls with him on a daily basis. Nice. I like that. I, I'm sending you a hard <laughs> Right. Heart emoji coming your way. Okay. Uh, all right. Korean barbecue or Southern barbecue? Uh, Curtis. I have to go with Korean barbecue. I think for obvious reasons with my background and my, and my marriage, but I will, uh, but man, if it's Wright's barbecue down by Smola, uh, then that's a different story maybe. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's Southern barbecue and uh, Wright's here in Northwest Arkansas is, is something else. If you've never had it. It sounds my, I'm my, my mouth is starting to water a little bit. I, I would certainly favor Southern barbecue as well too. It's only because I've spent, um, you know, I went to college in North Carolina and it just, it, it sort of, it, it never, it never got old. No, no matter how many, you know, hungover afternoons when you wake up in college, it's just, it always hits the spot. It's amazing. Tom, I'm worried about your diet during university days. Uh, <laughs> here, I gotta say. We, yeah, got, we, got, we got hostesses, ring dings, drakes, and barbecue. Yeah, the, what, 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 did keep me, what did keep me trim and limber was uh, I played lacrosse in college. So my, my a couple of years that I was down in North Carolina, I, uh, I played lacrosse. So anything that I consumed, I, I worked it off. Nice. Um, whether I liked it or not in practice or in game. So, <laughs> so that's why I have to be careful now. Um, uh, let's see. Final question. So uh, this is, this is not a comparison question. Just name a hero of yours. Well, I'll go first. I, I mean, it, obviously um, it's gotta be my dad and I'll tell you why it's um, he grew up in the depression he, when he, when he graduated high school, he had to go off to World War II. And when he got done with that, he, uh, he went to Korea. So he lived through depression. He lived through uh, two wars. Uh, he lived through the, the gas crunch of the, the 80s. Uh, he saw a lot in his lifetime. And yet he always had a smile on his face and positive words to provide. Oh, man, the greatest generation, isn't it? That's right. Well, I don't think I could top that, Mike. Although uh, my dad was uh, was a veteran as well, so uh, maybe they crossed paths uh, uh, in World War II at least. Um, so I will say uh, I'll, I'll I'll zig or zag a little bit. I'll say Teddy Roosevelt for me. Mm -hmm. Super cool, super cool. I love it. I mean, is this like is this actual work that we're doing today? <laughs> it's all it's always it's always so much fun and i can't tell you guys how much i appreciate you taking time to to have this conversation today you know i think our audience is going to love some of these insights and whatnot i mean it's just it's so cool talking to practitioners who are so much smarter than me and have just such cooler backgrounds too um so thank you guys very much thank you tom it was yeah. wonderful and it does sound like you had a lot more fun in college than my so, I mean, background is in the eye of the beholder. You, it sounds like you had some good times as well. Oh, I certainly did. I certainly did. <laughs> now, just a, now just a working stiff. But all right, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Take care, all Tom. Right. All right.